Welcome to Pocket Guide to Hell, the radio show, where we explore the intersections of art, politics, and culture as illuminated by Chicago's past. Along the way, we talk with fine folks doing the work of keeping the past present and show you the places where the city's history resides today. Near the end of the 19th century, a visiting labor leader called Chicago a, quote, pocket edition of hell. Asked if that was fair, he took in the corruption, inequality, and general nastiness and said, quote, on second thought, hell is a pocket edition of Chicago. But these are the stories, the people, and places that nudge us a bit closer to heaven. So what might be the strangest season in the history of baseball is drawing to its close. And the Chicago White Sox, for the first time since 2008, are going to be headed to the postseason. So yay, White Sox. Um, But, you know, you can't talk about the White Sox without thinking back to the World Series of 1919 Uh, in which the team of that time famously threw the World Series when it lost to the Cincinnati Reds. But we're not here to talk to you about what happened in 1919. Today, we're going to be talking to you about what happened the following year, in the fall of 1920. And that has to do with the other Chicago baseball team, the Chicago Cubs, which, Elliot, as you know, is certainly one of my favorite teams, uh, being from Cleveland. Yeah, yeah. Um, So not many people know this, but the Chicago Cubs do play a role in the larger story of the Chicago Black Sox of of 1919. Uh, And what's interesting uh, about that story is that it all connects back to a game that was played on August 30th, 1920, between the Cubs and the Philadelphia Phillies, uh, in which it was believed that the game was fixed. Uh, And as a grand jury was convened to investigate this, they interviewed an infielder for the Cubs, a man by the name of Charles Buck Herzog. But this is where the story gets really interesting. So Herzog gives some testimony. He's under suspicion. It leads to the larger revelation that the 1919 World Series may have been fixed, may have been corrupted. But, and this is something that I can identify. No, I should never advocate this. But... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Towards the end of the season, uh, on September 30th, uh, 1920, the Cubs are playing an exhibition game against a semi-pro team in Joliet, Illinois. Uh, the Cubs being the Cubs, they lose 5-4, even though they're Major League <laughs> Baseball players. They actually finished sixth that season, if, in case you're curious. Um, but Herzog, you know, because it was known that he was part of this story and, and this kind of scandal growing around crooked games in baseball, as he's leaving the game in Joliet, someone yells at him and calls him a crook. And this so infuriates him that he basically gets into a scuffle with this individual who pulls a knife and stabs Herzog. And I don't know about you, but I'm certainly someone who's felt like stabbing a Chicago Cubs player <laughs> in the past. Uh, we're not advocating right, we're not advocating violence. I'm saying it in a, in a metaphorical way. For me, in a metaphorical way. Um, but, yeah, you, uh, and, you and Jason Kipnis. Me and Jason Kipnis, that's right. Um, so you can hear, uh, as, as we're talking, uh, that we, we've got a person with us in, in the studio today to kind of talk about the connection between the Cubs and the White Sox around the sort of fixed World Series. And that person is Northwestern University English professor Bill Savage. But Bill also wanted me to point out that you were a member of SABRE. And what is SABRE? Uh, SABRE is the Society for American Baseball Research. 
Um, it's an independent nonprofit that's been in existence for, gee, 50 plus years now, decades, goes back a ways. And it's, uh, it's people, it usually gets associated with statistics, sabermetrics. Um, but m as many people do historical narrative research as do numerical <laughs> statistical research. So it's, uh, um, anything I have to say about the Black Sox in particular has been generated by a guy named Jacob Pomeranke and his committee. Uh, they have a special research committee that just focuses on the Black Sox. Okay, and and you yourself though, I mean, you teach courses that look at the sort of intersection of right. like literature and baseball, are very interested in baseball history, and in fact, you were um, just teaching a, a course for the the Newberry, correct? Right, I did a course just on the Black Sox in the summer of eighteen or nineteen, of course. Um, and I've taught a course at the Newberry for over 20 years now on baseball, literature, and film, and another one at Northwestern for almost as long. And if you're going to teach the literature and film, you've got to know the history. And so, you know, why, I guess, <laughs> I guess my, my, my first question is, you know, why do you think so much attention, I mean, it's, I guess because it involved the World Series, but so much attention has always been placed on the Chicago team of 1919, when, you know, what the, the research right. I did right. and the stories I was just telling suggests is that corruption seemed fairly rampant right. in professional baseball right. at that time. Well, base, uh, gambling was absolutely commonplace. Um, the term sport meant gambler. So like in The Great Gatsby, it's one of the tells that, that Gatsby is a, is a gangster. He keeps calling people old sport. Um, the, you know, any, anything you could bet on was considered sports. So horse racing, boxing, baseball. And baseball had endured literally since the beginning of the professional game, like in the second year of the National League, uh, the whole Louisville team was kicked off for, for throwing and fixing games. Um, but the reason the Black Sox stand out as the sort of sine qua non of this is because it was exposed so thoroughly and it changed the structure of the governance of the game. Uh, Kennesaw Montlandis was brought in to be commissioner. He banned the eight uh, Black Sox players, or arguably seven Black Sox and Buck Weaver, who's innocent as the day is long, which I can talk about too. Um, and then, but there was a whole bunch of other guys who got banned over the years. Um, individual game-fixing scandals were commonplace. I think in 1918, and you can find this on uh, the Sabre website, there was a riot in Fenway Park in Boston when the gamblers thought that you know, everything was going to go south for them. And like, if it, they just, if the game didn't get finished, it'd get called for darkness and have to be replayed. So they like stormed the field. And, you know, Buck Weaver got in fisticuffs with fans. It was just off the charts. Um, but the way that baseball dealt with gambling before the Black Sox scandal or the, and the big fix was uh, sort of cosmetic. You put a sign up saying no betting in the bleachers. You would throw out the guys making quarter bets on what the next pitch would be. Uh, meanwhile, the big-time gamblers are sitting right behind the dugout betting thousands. Um, but as long as baseball could appear clean, it couldn't, you know, put up with this, this uh, rampant corruption. And the best way to understand that in my mind is think about who was playing baseball. Nowadays, we're accustomed to baseball players making multi-zillion dollar contracts. Um, yeah, I mean, the league minimum is like $400,000 or something like that. Back then, these guys were making really good money. They were making two or three times what a factory worker might make. But their career might only last eight or ten years. Um, and so they were in it for the money. But baseball sells itself with the myth of the pure game, that people play baseball because they love baseball. So nobody would betray their love of the pure game for filthy lucre. Now, the owners might. Um, and that's actually my favorite myth about the Black Sox, that Charles Comiskey was so cheap, so the players were justified in, in taking uh, the gambler's money. 
Comiskey actually had one of the, high, the third highest payroll in the American League, right. behind only New York and Boston. And uh, three of his players were the highest played, paid players at their positions. Right. So that's just one of the myths people like to cling to. They don't want to blame the players. They want to blame the owners, which from a labor perspective, I can understand. I mean, once again, like the, the story of the Black Sox seemed like a lot of Chicago stories where it takes on these sort of mythical qualities right. and it obscures the complexities of that actual historical moment. I'm thinking even about the, the great Chicago fire where it, the, right. you would think that the entire city was destroyed based on the sort of stories that are told about the fire, and we forget that we had a whole south and west side yeah, yeah. <laughs> that were really impacted. <laughs> Might have been and, better off if they had burned. Right. It would have been and, rebuilt. And even yeah. here, I mean, it's all about, you know, the eight men that get banned for life from Major League Baseball. Um, but I was talking about Buck Herzog earlier, yeah. and that game in, in Joliet, that exposition game, is the last time that he wears a Cubs uniform, and he just sort of, like, quietly disappears. And there's other players of that era, mm-hmm. like Hal Chase, where oh, yeah. maybe they're not banned, but they're certainly uh, well, blacklisted, the, essentially. Right, yeah. The, the, there'd be a gentleman's agreement not to sign the guy anymore. Right. But often these often these fixed games were between the players, and it was like, look, you're out of the running. We're, we're in the pennant chase. Mm-hmm. Give us three out of four in this series, and we'll kick some a few bucks your way. And it could literally be as little as a few hundred dollars a man. But when you were making $4,000 a year, a couple 300 bucks was right. serious money. And the players themselves were in it to make a living. And if you could make, like, the other big fix that often gets overlooked because it isn't as thoroughly proved, the 1918 World Series Mm -hmm. between the Cubs and the Red Sox. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a great book, and I'm blanking on the author's name, but it's called The The Original Curse. And it's an investigation of this uh, moment. And there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that the players conspired to just keep the series going. Like, they wanted to get all nine games in to get paid as much as they could Mm -hmm. because there might not be baseball next year because of the war. Right. Um, and also, we tend to think, the, the way, especially the way uh, television media glorifies athletes and glorifies the idea of the ring and the, or the belt winning the championship and having this symbol of being the best. Yeah, no, I'm here to play ball and make money. If, if I don't win the championship but I make $10,000 more, what, what matters more? When, when does that dynamic start to kind of change? I mean, I'm, there's a professionalization of mm-hmm. the sport going on. And there's no clear, like, date by which, but, you right. know, roughly, uh, you know, when does the pay kind of uh, become much higher than it is in the, in the it, teens and 20s? It becomes much higher after uh, free agency in the mid-70s. Okay. And then, you know, Marvin Miller, the great labor leader for the, the players, you know, just outmaneuvered the owners right, left, and central. It, it wasn't free agency that drove up uh, salaries. It was arbitration. The owners are like, our number or your number? And Marvin Miller was like, sure, that sounds great. And then arbitrators would look at, the numbers and give the player his number because it was more accurate. But the, the thing is that the, the big change, the reason why we keep talking about the Black Sox is the banning of Buck Weaver. Weaver uh, knew about the fix but would not participate, but he didn't rat out his buddies. So he's held up as this kind of working class ideal, you know, stand-up guy. So banning him told every player in baseball, if you hear about this and don't say anything, you're going to lose your livelihood. He was kind of a sacrificial lamb in some ways. Um, you know, the other myth that, you know, the gamblers came to the players, uh-uh. Seacott and Gandal went to the gamblers. This was a player-generated fix. Um, you know, and that's, again, we want to root for the players. But the mythology changes. Between the, the scandal itself and the, the early, late 40s, early 50s, the mythology around Chicago was those players were dirtbags who betrayed the great Charles Comiskey, who right. built this beautiful ballpark. Who Kami, was the old, as he was known. Kami, the old Roman. <laughs> right. Yeah, Comiskey, not communisty. Um, and, but then, in, starting in the late 40s, Nelson Algren and Elliot right. Asanoff start writing about it. 
And there's kind of a DNA helix between those two writers. They quote mm-hmm. each other all the time writing about right. the Black Sox. And it turns into the players were all kind of working class guys from marginal parts of the country who were taken by the, the slick gamblers and exploited by the, the greedy owners. And suddenly Comiskey becomes a villain. And Shoeless Joe is the redemptive ghost who will come out of an Iowa cornfield and save your relationship with your Played dad. Played by Ray Liotta. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, this idea of, of Shoeless Joe, especially as a victim, and, and Buck as a victim, um, ignores the reality. I mean, Jackson took the money. Uh, period. End of conversation. He, he accepted money to play worse. Uh, but, I mean, but also what I'm hearing is that there were a lot of people who were doing right. that, and it was a regular, you know, not only within the sport, it sounds like, but also, like, in the context of Chicago. Right. I mean, when we're seeing other stories about corruption running rampant, you know, like, why would it be any different in any other place? I mean, you mentioned Algren, and mm-hmm. I think to that, that moment in uh, Chicago City on the Make where he's talking about his childhood right. and being a fan of the White Sox, but now living on the north side and the taint of that, right, right. And the scandal and it being given grief by Cubs fans, All but given that, like, the Cubs threw games as well, mm-hmm. and you had corrupt players like Herzog, I mean, do you think Cubs fans maybe need to let go <laughs> of, like, the, the Black Sox shaming I, at this you point? You know, Algren himself called it all our dirty South Side guilt, mm. right? Um, I don't personally, except for one T-shirt I've got that is a, a fake Black Sox logo and says cheating free since 1919, <laughs> um, I don't personally, I'm not a Cub fan who blows any grief the direction of... Sox fans. Um, but it's, it's again, it'd be the reason why this narrative endures and people forget the, the co- totally commonplace aspect of gambling in baseball by players, by fans, by everybody, is it was the World Series and it was the last time. Until Pete Rose. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Right. And I think Rose demonstrated very clearly why the, the rule about gambling has to be in place. You know, when he was managing the Reds and betting on his own team, any day he didn't bet on his own team, he told the gamblers that he thought his team was going to lose. As soon as the gamblers have you, they've got you. And the, mm-hmm. the Black Sox continued to throw games during the 1920 season. Um, but, again, that was part of the, the, the commonplace aspect of it. Mm-hmm. The World Series is the World Series, or as Ring Lardner called it, the World Series. Right? It's the mm-hmm. ultimate. Right. So when that's what uh, the gamblers taint, it's, it, it, that's where it, uh, why it endures the way it does. Uh, Daniel Nathan wrote a great book called Saying It So, A Cultural History of the Black Sox Scandal where he delves into, like, the metaphors of sickness and illness. You know, you got to cure the game. Uh, also, a lot of anti-Semitism. The idea mm-hmm. that slick Jewish gangsters from New York are polluting America's pure heartland. Um, so it's, that's a book real, well worth reading, along with mm-hmm. uh, Scandal on the South Side, which is the anthology that Saber put together, where it's a biography of every player on the team, a story of the whole season's uh, games, how things went, and real background on everything that added up to the Black Sox scandal. Well, um, not wanting to put a wager on it, um, <laughs> but what are your, your thoughts about the, the postseason in this COVID year? Are, could we see a Crosstown series? Uh, if we saw a Crosstown series, this town would burn down again. The Great Chicago Fire would look like a, a camp out with making s'mores. Um, th- I remember back in 2008, the Cubs did make the postseason. The Sox almost did. Or no, the Cubs and Sox both made the postseason both got eliminated in the first round. I wrote a piece for Cranes basically saying, if, you know, if they make it to the World Series, forget it. Just close all the offices because no one will work, you know, and no one will be able to work with their, their you know, office mate who happens to root for the other team. But with COVID, we're all home anyway. So <laughs> why, why worry about it? <laughs> yeah. um, for the most part, except for essential workers, of course, who are screwed as usual. Um, the other, th- you know, if I was talking with some of my season ticket buddies the other day. 
I'm like, so what's worse for as a Cub fan? Losing in the LCS to, say, Los Angeles or losing in the World Series to the White Sox. And they all said losing in the World Series to the White Sox would be worse because you'd never hear the end of it. <laughs> and I, I imagine some Sox fans might feel the same way. Like, losing the LCS, well, you, lost, you did. You know, somebody mm. else was better than you. If the Cubs are better than you, it's the end of the world. In 1906, the White Sox beat the Cubs. Sox fans don't talk about that as much as they could, I think, if I oh. might give you all a hint. All right. <laughs> Maybe a future story. We'll, we'll return to the 1906 World Series. All right. Well, thank you, Bill, uh, very much for joining us today. My and pleasure. And helping us better understand the 1919 Black Sox scandal. My pleasure. Well, I guess we'll just have to wait and see if Bill's prediction of a crosstown series that leads to the second great Chicago fire truly comes to pass. <laughs> Um, you know, we've been talking a lot today about baseball in, in 1920, but it was actually 75 years ago this month that the Chicago Cubs clinched the National League title. That would be 1945 hmm. uh, by beating the Pirates on the, on the 29th of September. And you know why that particular World Series is significant? Uh, it's another thing that Cubs fans talk about all the time. <laughs> That's probably, well, they do. <laughs> and the reason why... They do is because when the Cubs went on to face the Detroit Tigers in that World Series in October of 1945, in the fourth game, a gentleman by the name of Bill Cyanus brought his pet goat to the game. Huh. He and the goat were purportedly thrown out, and he placed a curse upon the team. This, of course, is Bill Cyanus of the Billy Goat Tavern yeah. fame and the curse of the Billy Goat. So the curse of the Billy Goat is going to turn 75 years this fall. Um, happy birthday. Happy birthday to a curse. I don't yeah. think many people do that. Uh, and... You know, as we know, the curse purportedly came to its end in, in, in 2016 when the Cubs won the World Series against my hometown team, uh, Cleveland. It's okay, Paul. <laughs> Chin up. I'm, I'm, still, I'm still bitter. Uh, <laughs> good thing there aren't any Cubs players around for me to, to stab. Once again, metaphorically, <laughs> only metaphorically. We're going to end the episode uh, by noting a passing. Um, but this passing happened uh, 75 years ago on the uh, 23rd of September, 1945, and that is when the world lost Charles Chaplin D'Elia. Oh. Yeah. Now, now what makes uh, Charlie Chaplin D'Elia special? Well, he has the distinction of being the longest-lived dog in the history of the city of Chicago. He passed away at the ripe old age of 22. So what kind of, what kind of dog was he? He was a small dog. He was a, a, a bulldog and kind of terrier mix. Um, and his owner, Bertha D'Elia, attributed his long life to the fact that it seems, at least according to the accounts, that she treated Charlie Chaplin much better than she treated herself. So keep in mind, he, he passes away uh, at the ripe old age of 22, apparently after having a final breakfast and giving a very sort of approving look up at, at Bertha, and then he just sort of falls over and, and passes. Um, but... Apparently, you know, this is the 40s, and during the war years, everyone had to sort of, like, ration their food, right? And so the very limited rations that she got in terms of meat, she just gave everything to Charlie Chaplin. Uh, I, as a dog owner, I, I admire that from a distance. <laughs> you mean Red, if, if push comes to shove, Red's not going to be getting the, the finest food in the house. I mean, he's going to get enough, right? Well, that's, that's true. But one thing that, you know, might interest you, and, and this is something that else could have happened to Red in, in 1945. So on the same day that, that Charlie Chaplin leaves this world, at Soldier Field, they have an event where they bring out 150 puppies. Uh, they also have a performing dog called uh, Corporal Buck, who apparently can speak five words. I don't really know <laughs> what words those were. All bad words. The, the accounts <laughs> don't get into it. Uh, but this was all an event uh, on behalf of something called Dogs for Defense. 
And so once again, you know, 75 years ago, we're in, you know, the countries involved in, in the Second World War, and starting it in 1942, uh, very early, April 1942, this organization forms called, call, forms called Dogs for Defense, and the Chicago chapter was located on LaSalle Street, uh, basically at LaSalle near where it hits the eastern branch of the Chicago River, uh, and they were basically calling on Chicagoans to donate their family pets the war effort was was this because you had just like some really avid person who was doing this or was this because the army was was actually asking for dogs the army was asking for dogs and they did need dogs um they weren't going to purchase any so they were asking for donations and what dogs for defense did and it was an all-volunteer operation is they identified the dogs trained them and then kind of shipped them off to the military and you would think that like all dogs are good dogs right and that they would be looking for any sort of help they could get with the war effort. Uh, but there were some dogs that didn't make the cut. And what's interesting is they classified dogs the same way they classified people. So there were dogs that were designated like 4F, which basically meant they were not fit to serve. You want to guess what, what some of those dogs might have been? I mean, I'm going to guess nice dogs and I'm going to guess small dogs. But why, why don't you tell me specifically what dogs? <laughs> it's amazing that you guess <laughs> those qualities. <laughs> yes, uh, Cocker Spaniels, Fox Terriers. Wire hares, Afghan hounds. In fact, the gentleman who ran uh, Dogs for Defense here in Chicago said that if he had to pick a dog that was pursuing him, he would pick a Cocker Spaniel because no one would be scared of it. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it's pretty good for the Cocker Spaniel, though. So um, it sounds like the Cocker Spaniel is pretty smart not to go to war. That is true, yes. Yeah. Cocker Spaniel is known to be a very uh, pacifist breed. <laughs> well, for better or for worse, uh, we have an election around the corner in November. Uh, but today we're gonna like look at something that happened locally here a hundred years ago uh, in, in late September. And uh, I have to start by asking you, Elliot, uh, what do you think of your, your alderman? Well, uh, I'm glad I have representation, but uh, I, I don't always agree with what my alderman <laughs> decides. Now imagine if you had two aldermen in your ward. I, cannot, I do not know whether or not that would be better or worse. Well, that was the state of affairs 100 years ago here in the city of Chicago for the city's residents. Uh, at the time, Chicago, oddly enough, was about the same size as it is today, about 2.7 million residents. But what was different is back in 1920, you had 35 wards, and you had two aldermen in each of those wards, so for a city council of 70 people, which is kind of crazy to kind of think about. And this all came about, you know, starting with the city's founding. So the whole act of incorporation from 1837 established a system by which each ward would have two elected representatives. And then as the city grew, they just kept adding wards and kept adding council people. So uh, what, what were the, the consequences of that? Well, what happened is that, you know, a lot of people felt that it created a sort of dynamic where, like, one alderman could simply blame the other if something went wrong in the ward, right? Uh, it also created a lot of opportunities for, for bribery and, and graft. Um, but also the way in which the city kind of grew, it kind of led to some weird patterns in, in representation, right? So to just use the census of, of 1920, in the 25th Ward, which was kind of located uh, on the west side of the city, very close to where the 25th Ward is today, you had about 120,000 people living in that ward, with just two people representing them. But then the first ward, you had only 45,000 people living in, in that ward. And that ward was represented by the notoriously corrupt aldermen John Bathhouse Coughlin and Mike Hinkydink Kenna. So the belief was that this sort of like, these problems had to be addressed. And 
in September of 1920, a citizens committee approached the election board and then they had this petition to get on the ballot basically the, the right for the voters to kind of agree to a plan to redraw city ward boundaries, to increase the number of wards to 50, but to reduce the city council to 50 aldermen. And it passed in, in November by over 100,000 votes and basically created the sort of structure of city government that we have today. So this was part of kind of progressive era feelings of reform, and and uh, obviously there were a lot of issues with corruption, and as we'll as we'll hear in a second, uh, what what kind of effects did this have? Well, the the immediate effects were more or less to kind of plunge city government into chaos. So even though the voters like approved this measure by a large margin, which also had some other changes as well, it, it reduced aldermanic terms from four years to two years. It also created a nonpartisan system in which people ran for office. Despite these reforms, you know, there were a lot of aldermen who weren't very keen on, on losing their position in the council. You had a mayor who wasn't keen on losing the support that he had from said aldermen. So they kept kind of delaying things and, and delaying when they would redraw the kind of ward boundaries and, and create the new wards. And ultimately, they end up in a weird situation where they have 50 wards that are put in place, but because of like, all sorts of complications with Chicago elections, you end up having like five of these new wards that don't have a single alderman representing them. And there's one ward in which you actually have three aldermen representing that person. And it's not until the elections of 1923 that everything gets sorted out where you're voting for all 50 aldermen representing all 50 wards at one time. And because, of course, this is Chicago, we have our elections for the city council in February. Uh, and if there's a need for a runoff election that happens in April. So this is why we have our elections in, in kind of off years. We had our last one in, in 2019. Correct. Right. A lot of people wonder, like, why do we have our elections in off years? It dates to these reforms from the 1920s when it was agreed upon that, like, this new plan would go into effect. There'd be an election in 21 and then not, not another election until 23 when the whole new full council would be elected. And now to talk to us about uh, cronyism and corruption on the city council, we're going to be joined by Paul Daling, Paul is a journalist and also the creator of the Corruption Tour. Uh, hey, Paul, how are you doing? Pretty good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. So, uh, Paul, Ellie and I were just talking a moment ago um, about, you know, what happened this weekend in Chicago history back in 1920, which is a citizens committee put forward a petition that was ultimately ended up on the ballot that allowed voters to decide whether they wanted to basically restructure city government and create 50 wards, each with a single older person, this thing passed by over 100,000 votes. And as I was telling Elliot, you know, after these reforms were put in place, everything was perfect from then on. Is that an accurate Obviously. assessment? Obviously. <laughs> so, um, you know, in terms of, of your own work and, and kind of like what sort of inspired you to create the, the corruption tour, kind of like looking at just the sort of like structure of, of Chicago city government, um, I mean, what, what do you think are, are some of the, the root problems that lead to, like, problems with cronyism or, or, or corruption, which we, I mean, continue to experience here now 100 years later after these kind of progressive era reforms were, were put in place? Well, I think a lot of it is uh, the structure of city council, not in terms of how many wards or, or how many seats there are. Uh, sometimes you get an argument that, oh, everything would be wonderful if we cut it down to 15 wards or 12 wards or or something like that. And my response is always, do you really want to make Ed Burke that much more powerful? <laughs> mm. um, so I think a lot of it has to do with all the other stuff you get to do. 
if you are uh, <clears throat> if you're the alderman, what you get to approve, what you don't get to approve. Um, some talks about zoning changes can be done through the alderman. Uh, some of the <clears throat> approvals of different contracts, things have changed over the years. Um, but I think uh, some some of the, the the factors of that are if you're alderman, you get to sort of run things as a little mini fief. You get to do a lot of the. I'm speaking in general terms here because mm-hmm. things have changed. Uh, the, the mayors uh, uh, talked about and made some changes in terms of the amount of control that aldermen have over different approval processes and different stuff, blah, blah, blah. But the more stuff you can approve, the more your power. Uh, one of the things I find most interesting, you mentioned Ed Burke just now. Uh, I don't know if he's come up before in this episode, but you know he's under indictment for... Corruption, long-serving Chicago. Uh, I think Alderman. he may have been on the council back in, in 1920 <laughs> uh, when these were. No, I'm just kidding. He's only been there since 68. Um, yeah. yeah, he's a, he's a newbie. He's only yeah. been there since 68. You know, <laughs> right. Yeah, it's not one of those hereditary seats like the colors. What he's charged with is using uh, the approval powers given to him by the city by being an alderman to steer business to his privately owned business. If you wanted to set, you know. He's, charged with trying to shake down a Burger King. Well, interestingly enough, the Burger King where Laquan McDonald was shot, mm-hmm. um, trying to use it to shake down, hey, you'll get this thing approved if you do your if you do your tax work with my tax law firm. And that is literally and exactly the same con an alderman uh, from the teens through the uh, in the 20s, Bathhouse Coughlin, mm-hmm. did in his work. He would use his aldermanic powers to steer business to his insurance agency. So, you know, 100 years later, the same con is still working. If the more you get to do as alderman, the more stuff you get to approve, the more clout you can use to sway people to your own little side hustle. So cutting the council down from like two aldermen per ward to one alderman per ward really didn't ultimately change all that much. It just meant that now you didn't have to divide the boodle with, with anyone? Pretty much. I mean, you mentioned Bathhouse Scotland uh, mm-hmm. just now. You know, not much really changed when it couldn't be Bathhouse Scotland and Hinky Ding Kenna running the show together. You know, just one of them took a knee and the other one stayed on the city council. Right, that's um, true for, for decades, or at least yeah, another and then decade. I mean, there's all these other positions you can... Uh, well, uh, I just I wanted yeah. to ask a question too. Uh, it seems like really interesting that this is you know this this reform comes out of like the progressive era where there's a feeling that that you know uh, that things can change and this is one of the principal things that 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 at least legally changes or civically changes. But, it, but from what I'm hearing, it doesn't really get at any root issue. So it makes me think a lot about you know we're in a similar moment of reform right now, uh, like where 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 oftentimes we see that there's there's calls for this thing will will solve our problem. So you know you were mentioning aldermanic privilege or whatever. Um, yeah. In in the wake of in the wake of like the redistricting, you know, was there was there a sense at least for a little bit that that things had gotten better and that you know corruption had in some sense gotten changed, or or did everybody just kind of see this for what it was? That um, I don't really feel comfortable speculating on. Uh, you can certainly find sources from the time saying it would be, you know, you you can find sources from the time saying both basically, oh, what a wonderful change. Oh, it's not going to change a thing. So I, I can't. I don't really feel comfortable speculating like what the average person on the street would have would have felt about it. I mean, obviously, as you point out, it's a very popular measure. Um, 
so but corruption just kind of continue like corruption kind of just continues apace this doesn't really make yeah. it done in in, in yeah i mean yeah. that's that's true but it's also very uh sort of a dangerous path uh to yeah. go down you know it's just sort of gets to okay then why do anything you know i don't think if i think anyone looking for a one change that would stop things is going to be very uh disappointed that doesn't mean we shouldn't make those changes. Yeah. You know, for uh, just going for a couple other examples, you know, people always talk about like TIF districts as some, as the current source of, you know, uh, sort of these very complicated mathematical mayoral slush funds. And it's like, well, if we just get rid of TIF districts, then this would solve everything. This would change everything. I'm just like, do you honestly think getting rid of TIF districts is going to make people honest? It's a particular. It's it's a particular program. It's a particular thing. You, it, it it can't be one thing will change everything. If you look at, and the the reformers, the progressives at the time, they weren't looking at you know okay, we've gotten we've re, you know changed the number of aldermen. Now we're going to sit back on our laurels. They were looking as part of sort of a kid apart approach. We do this. We do this. Don't give up. Don't stop. So I think you know speaking in very general terms again, it might have been an important step. But no, no, no one thing is going to magically clear up this this culture. And is there is do you have a sense of of anything uh, concrete that was kind of accomplished by these reforms? I mean, one of the things that was noticeable was just the disparity in the number of people that were represented by by alter people, and and so even in that you know even in that simple metric was that kind of evened out, or were there other kind of concrete things that we can point to as it having accomplished? Um, I can't really say that for for certain, like, what this one particular act would or would not have accomplished. I don't, I, I haven't done much research on it. Obviously, I know what happened and some of the effects, but right. I can't really <clears throat> present myself as an expert on this particular move. Well, Paula, since you mentioned Bathhouse John and uh, Hinky Dink, I, I wanted to talk about them for a second in connection to your corruption tour. So, I mean, one thing that we yeah. want to kind of focus on on this show are people doing kind of interesting public history projects uh, I had the honor of being uh, on one of the first tours, I believe, that that, that you yeah. gave um, way back in mm-hmm. 2016, I think it was. Um, <laughs> a while ago, yeah. It, it does. It seems like an eternity, given what we're living through uh, right now. And uh, you were on, in, in 2019, uh, you were on Chicago Tonight, uh, kind of announcing that you were going to be s- suspending the tours after that sort of three-year period. But I, I want to talk a little bit about what, kind of given your background as a journalist, kind of inspired you to sort of do this public history project and, and, and why you thought it was kind of important to kind of highlight this kind of longer history of, of corruption. I mean, starting with figures like, you know, Coughlin and, and Kenna, but really kind of continuing up through our contemporary moment. Well, I think what the original um, incentive was for the tour was sort of frustration on, on my part. I had been a journalist for a while since joined the nonprofit world, but I was a journalist at the time and I was getting very frustrated, spent all this time writing about politics, writing about all these issues, you know, just really ground-level stuff. I don't, I'm not going to claim I was, like, crusading, you know, Woodward and Bernstein-type reporter, although let's leave Bob Woodward out of this for the moment. Um, but, you know, just this ground-level covering your local community, you know, your local governmental body, boring stuff. And I just wanted to shake people and say, no, this is really important. I don't, you know, this, this boring grinding municipal <clears throat> governmental beat reporting 
it's actually really important. And I could see these things everywhere. I could see the effect in the real world, and I just started the idea of, like, hey, you know, if I can take people to these places and show them these things, that's when you get it. You know, you can talk all you want about gerrymandering, but and people say, oh, yeah, that's bad. But I would take people to, a, to this one intersection downtown where you can see four different state representative districts from that one spot, and the people like, oh, oh. And obviously this wasn't, um, this didn't come out of nowhere. I had a lot of inspiration. Uh, Paul, your pocket guide to hell tours uh, was, was an inspiration for this. Uh, the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization would do to- these toxic tours. I don't know if they still do them, mm-hmm. but they would do these toxic tours, taking people around all the different sites in, in, in this uh, uh, low-income, heavily Latino community that were just, you know, uh, industrial pollutants. You know, so just the, I, I'm not claiming I took the idea of, like, showing people what's going on, you know, showing versus telling, right? That's what they always tell people writing things, show, don't tell. Well, why not just literally show them? And a lot of the stuff I did um, sort of using this cult, this mystique of Chicago corruption for my own nefarious purposes of getting people to care about, like, nerdy mathematical tip districts and gerrymandering uh stuff, you know, I knew people wouldn't go to the, hey, let's go see the TIF district tour. Let's go look at, you know, congressional gerrymandering tour. But people like the stories about Hinky Dink Kenna and mm-hmm. Bathhouse Coughlin and... Uh, and the Mirage, um, which was a and, and the Mirage, story, right? Yeah, which is a fantastic story. They love this thing. Um, so I sort of used that to, to lure people in and like, alright, we're going to talk about Rod Blagojevich. But first... Let's learn about tax increment financing. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) Golden. (laughs) And and then I'd find out, like, uh, you know, people would remember that the, people would remember that stuff. I mean, I don't care if people who took the tour remember Bathhouse Coughlin was on the city council until 1920 or 1927, but I do care if they remember, like, okay, this gerrymandering thing is messed up. And Chicago's very weird. Have either of you ever been to City Hall? Yes. yes, unfortunately. Okay. <laughs> <We said laughs> on the second floor, they have this... A great deal of consternation. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on the second floor, they've got this uh, <clears throat> historical alderman thing, some pictures and some political cartoons, and just on the walls, the decoration. And then there's one that's like the alt- and a couple like knocking the alderman of the era. And it was um, like the, one of them in particular that struck me is the alderman's bill of rights. And it was like a... a Signing mock-up of the signing of Declaration of Independence, but it was drawn, and there were all these uh, really shady-looking aldermen, you know, your stereotypical image of a 1920s cigar-chomping alderman who owns a saloon, and they're signing a Declaration of Independence, and, like, all aldermen have the right to graft and everything, which is a pretty bog-standard political cartoon of the era. But I was, I was just, if you're the Chicago City Council, why, do you, why are you putting this on your own wall? <laughs> There's just this, like, weird culture of pride around it. Like, oh, you know, the Chicago, you know, we're, our politics are super corrupt. Hey, you got to know a guy at the hall, that sort of stuff. So, yeah, so I think the sort of the part of the idea was to use that whole idea of, like, colorful historical stories. I hate the term colorful. These people would not be your friends if they were around today, you know? Yeah. Everyone pictures, like, if they picture the 20s, they're picturing, like, 
drinking at a speakeasy and rubbing elbows with Al Capone. I'm like, no, Al Capone would probably hurt you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm certain Hickey yeah. Dink and Bathhouse John would be expecting a generous donation. Um, <laughs> well, you've got to buy your tickets to the Ward Fundry. That's right, that's right. Um, so you, the you, you decided, you made the decision to end the, the tours in... Uh, 2019, because you became a father, so congratulations. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And now you're living in Oak Park, which I know is why you were a little hesitant to, to talk with us yeah. today, because you were like, didn't want to be seen as the person outside Chicago commenting on Chicago, um, which is understandable yeah. and laudable. Um, but kind of given that, that now you, you are living in, in Oak Park, kind of reflecting back on, on the tour and just kind of your work within Chicago, I mean, do you see anything differently or think anything differently in terms of like the political culture here, or are there things that you've observed in Oak Park that you think work really well that you wish could be, you know, extended to Chicago, or, or maybe there are, th well, there are similar problems, <laughs> despite the, the different communities? I think one thing, perspective, uh, one piece of perspective I've gained on this, because um, that also was, although I didn't really announce at the time, that knowing that we were looking to get a house in the Burbs uh, was part of the reason. I mean, was part of the reason I ended the, the tour. I mean, I didn't want, like, just to repeat what you just said, I didn't really, it's a very different thing to do a tour like that when you're part of a community, because then you're, like, pointing out the things that are in your, wrong with your own community to fix them. And being from the outside, being from the suburbs, even though I could just, like, it, throw a stone and hit Chicago City limits... Doesn't stop Not John Cass from. <laughs> yeah, no, I, no, no, I guess now he lives in the city of Chicago. But, yeah, I sorry. know. I have mm. less. I have less. I, I now have less uh, to say than John Cass, and that is a horrifying statement. <laughs> um, yeah. So you know, it's just very. It's it's different. It feels like morally different to be throwing stones from afar. You know, to my safe, my 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 suburban home to get all descendants on you. Um, and criticizing somewhere else. But I also think, like, one piece of perspective this has given me is just the scope of the power and responsibility that Chicago government has, because it's not just Chicago. It, I lose sight. It's just this entire ecosystem of millions of millions of people and the, all these other governments that are sort of dependent on Chicago. But suburban living is sort of a parasitical form of government. You know, there's no way, economically speaking, you could take Oak Park or any of these other bedroom communities and pluck them away from everything else and have it survive. You, you just can't economically have a town that is just charming bungalows and a cute downtown shopping district. It don't work. Mm -hmm. People need jobs. People need transportation. They need this entire ecosystem that is provided by Chicago. So there's sort of a moral question about the suburbs that I've been struggling with a lot lately because the whole idea is that I make my money in Chicago and I invest it in Oak Park. I, I am a pre-work-from-home-orders, commuter, downtown office building, and then I'd take the L out every night and I'd see all these people. And I, I saw this one woman who I randomly happened to know, and she's the head of a managing partner of a big law firm, big law downtown. And she was just commuting out. And I was just thinking, like, the millions of dollars. She's an absolute millionaire. The millions of dollars that one person is making in Chicago and taking out of Chicago every night, making it in the day, taking it out every night, is astounding. They're not, they, we, suburbanites, we, myself included, 
you know, just the amount of the drain of resources leaving that city every day on the train. And then I'm back every morning to make more. And I'm not paying for the schools in Chicago. I'm not paying property taxes there. But it's a form of looting almost. I live where I live because of the proximity to cool places, sports teams, um, jobs, and all this other stuff. But I don't want to pay for any of it. Mm. Screw that. I'm paying for chumps. To heck with that. So I think like that's really changed my perspective on responsibility of Chicago government because they have to be the economic driver for this entire region, including a bunch of suburban parasites like me. So it's um, it's changed. I mean, I, I I see more like how much power they, how much responsibility they have, and how much power they have. So on one hand, it makes me realize more. They've got a lot on their shoulders. Maybe I should back off, but on the other, more reasonable hand, it says, no, they have a lot of responsibility, and so maybe they shouldn't be using it to line their own dang pockets. There's millions more people, depending on these people, to be honest, than I had really considered in my initial mathematics doing the, the tour. So I think it's just changed my perspective. You know, I not to get all, to, to quote the great moral philosopher Spider-Man's Uncle Ben, <laughs> with great power comes great responsibility and it's being out here made me realize more how truly awesome the power and the responsibility are of chicago city government and makes me even a little more angry like hey come on get a lot of people writing us your decisions here don't line your own pocket so i mean it also sounds like you could uh, uh think about a continuation of the corruption tour that <laughs> that links the suburbs and, and the urban center too no, right? i'm thinking about that <laughs> oh too, no no, no. <laughs> it's not it's a walking tour Okay. <laughs> like, okay, for the next stop, we're going to walk four miles to Naperville. <laughs> <laughs> Let's head out to Tampa, guys. That's right. Lace up your boots. What we were talking about just made me call up an article, um, which is in, you know, the, the city elections that followed the adoption of this new city plan. They were happening in February and then April of, of 1921. And apparently, like, Oak Park was one of the places where voters turned out in force in April of that year to basically kind of oppose what they saw as, like, a creeping Thompsonism. In, into their community, um, mm-hmm. which, of course, was like a shorthand for William Bill Thompson, who was a notoriously corrupt uh, mayor yeah. of, of Chicago. Um, so it's just interesting that there's, you know, there's always been this very kind of tight relationship between, like, what was happening politically within the city, but then how that's kind of, like, impacting sort of the surrounding suburban communities as well. So, Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Um, we really enjoyed this. I, I agree with Elliot. I hope that there's some way that in the next couple of years you can, you know, go back to giving some tours because the corruption tour was really a great experience and I'm certain I, there's I st- so many more stories oh. to tell I, I just to toss out a bit of personal promotion not selling anything mm-hmm. <laughs> I did start a I did start a podcast of some of the tour stories I was going to just dump everything there and then move on to whatever I decided to do next and then COVID happened so I only got like six episodes of the podcast in but a lot of these stories are available uh, podcast Chicago Corruption Walking Tours wonderful alright well I, I will Hope that our listeners will check it out. So, uh, thank you uh, once again. That was Paul Daling, uh, journalist and creator of the Corruption Tour. Thanks again, Paul, for thank talking you, Paul. with us. Thank you. This was fun. So that was Paul Daling, our guest today, and I, I really hope that he does uh, develop that tour of, of the yeah. suburbs and kind of, or at the very least, kind of revives his Chicago Corruption Tour when we can be giving walking tours again. Uh, as a footnote for today, I, I just wanted to mention. In that first election in, in February of 1921, under the new system, there were four aldermen who ran without any of opponents, 
And one of them was the 12th Ward Alderman at the time, Anton J. Cermak. Is that name familiar to you? Yeah, that's my, that's my old alder, Alderman. That's your old Alderman? <laughs> Back in the 1920s? Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I know you live in Little Village today, and of course, you know, Cermak uh, cuts through it. Uh, and the reason that we have a street named after Cermak is because he would later go on in the 1930s to challenge William Hale Thompson for mayor of Chicago, go on to win. Sadly, he was assassinated, but not before creating the modern-day democratic machine that continues to shape our lives socially and politically today. A mixed history. A very mixed history. Uh, Uh, On that note, uh, that's been our show. I'd like to thank our guest once again, Paul Daling, my co-host, Elliot. Hello. uh, Our producer, Annie Klein, and WLPN Radio. As for you, fine fellow Chicagoans, keep making history.